Welcome to Cornerstone Reformed Baptist Church. Thank you for using and sharing our resources. What you're about to hear is God's Word from one of our teaching elders. We trust that God's Word will inspire, instruct, and bless you. For further teachings or information on our ministry, please visit us on our website at cornerstonerbc.com. That's cornerstonerbc.com. Hebrews chapter 1, starting at verse 1. The letter to the Hebrews, sorry, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is the text for us to really consider today. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I want to come back to that text that we were just reading that moment ago in in Hebrews 1, chapter 1, verse 3, particularly that concept. So he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the world of his power, by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Making purifications for sins. Uh, I don't know if you uh, get to talk to many people out in the world that are really concerned about this kind of thing. Uh, well, I hope that my sins have been cleansed. How, how else will God accept me? But of course, this is the concern for the Christian. Uh, this is a concern for God's people because we realize, we spoke about this roughly last week, that we realize that, that we as sinful human beings are coming to a holy God. And, and we have been joined to him in, in covenant. We don't have to talk about covenant language, but, but there is this idea in marriage. It's perhaps the closest that we get in our modern world. The idea that, that my wife and I are joined in marriage. And what I do as part of the, that covenant actually has implications upon her. The very fact that I might stuff up will make her look bad. I don't think about it like that very often, but it's true. If all of a sudden I should be able to become unable to work, it's going to have implications upon her in a way that it's not going to have an implication on any other woman because we're in covenant with one another. And the same goes for her. If if she's not able to end up with her end of the bargain being fulfilled, we're still in covenant. That doesn't break that covenant. That covenant is there. It's true. It's, it's, It's unchanging in this time of marriage comes to an end. We will know each other, but not as husband and wife, as, but as fulfilled brothers and sisters in Christ. But, get that idea. What I do affects her, and what she does affects me. And it's a special relationship in that way. We are one. 
So ultimately, what's at stake in terms of atonement at one This is what atonement is. We are, uh, we are in covenant relationship with God, and what it is that we do reflects badly upon God. And so ultimately, God had to come up with such a way as to have at one have an atonement with us and him that vindicated his holiness. Levitical system was a shadow and a type of, of what that would look like. But, but ultimately, Jesus Christ would be the one who would actually bring it into its full understanding. This is what the author of Hebrews has in mind. Made purification. This idea in the Greek is that there's a cleansing. It's a washing. And the, we wash. We bathe. I haven't met anybody here yet that I've gone, wow, that guy really needs a shower. But that's never going to actually take away sin. So let's think about this for a moment. In terms of the shadow, think about this for a moment. The cleansing that was done was done in blood. Always. Uh, Whenever I think about the job of a Levite, the job of of a son of Aaron, I think butchery. Not cleansing. Here we have this person that will come along and you will lay your hand upon the particular beast that you're able to bring that, uh, that day and then he will uh, pour out its blood. And often he'll take some of it and he'll splash it around. He'll splash it on you. He'll, he'll splash it on the altar once a year. For, on behalf of all of Israel, he would take blood into the Holy of Holies. It's very bloody. Think about the fact that cleansing involves something that we in the modern world would consider dirty. But what's the picture? We get it. We don't need to export ourselves to the modern world. The picture is that as this beast is dying on my behalf, on the behalf of my people or the behalf of my nations, what I'm really saying is that, that this beast is taking upon itself the very punishment that I deserve. It's getting what I deserve. As I, as I look at what this creature is going through, that's what I should be getting, but it's getting it. And that's the way that the cleansing happens. We're not washing off dirt. We're trying to do something with this very thing called sin, which mars us, it stains us. It stains our conscience. It stains our relationship with other people. It stains our relationship with God. We're, we're trying to deal with this, this thing called sin. It makes us dirty. And it creates barriers between us and God. And as that bull or that lamb or that pigeon is dying, we recognize that it's dying in our place. And the priest has to do this over and over and over again because ultimately sin never went away. It was this constant reminder that I am a sinner and every single other person that's coming into the temple is a sinner and the nation is a sinner and the priest himself is a sinner. It's this constant reminder again and again and again. And then we hear, thanks to the author of Hebrews, that Jesus Christ... Not only does he make purification for sins, not only does he offer cleansing for sins, but then he does something that no other priest has ever done before him. He goes and he sits down. That's not the kind of stature of a priest. Find anywhere where a priest ever sat down. 
It's done. And not only does he sit down, but he sits down at the, at the right hand of God. In that place of honour, glory. He sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so within this verse, we get, we're going to get everything else that we're going to look at today. We get the idea of priesthood. Somebody who's making a cleansing, an atonement for people. We get the idea that Jesus is this one who does it. And that it's complete. He sits down. And that in that is there, he is glorified. I'm gonna, I want to use a couple of fancy theological terms. You guys can handle it, I know. There's often a debate that goes on between this, this idea that what Jesus Christ achieved on the cross was, was, was some kind of enthronement. And, and that we get those people, this, the fancy theological term for that is Christus Victor. Christ reigning. And then there are this, this other camp that exists and, and, and it's the penal substitutionary camp. That's, that's what Jesus did. I think we need to look at it another way. There is no Christus Victor without penal substitutionary atonement. There is no enthronement of Christ. There is no him sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high, which is the goal of atonement, right? That's the goal. The goal is that Jesus Christ will reign supreme. But the means through which he does that is penal, substitutionary atonement. He takes the penalty. He, he, you can look upon him and you can say, that's what I deserved. Just like the lamb, the bull, the goat, the pigeon. That's what I deserved. It should have been my blood being spilt. But he actually achieved something. He achieved something that we couldn't. If we had a thousand years to live and, and we could spill our blood over and over again to atone for ourselves, we still wouldn't atone for ourselves. Because every ounce of that blood would be filled with sin. We would still be guilty. So Jesus Christ is able to do something once for all that we could never do for ourselves and we could certainly never do for any other people. And in the taking on of the punishment of the sins of his people... He reigns supreme among them. He finally and once from for all conquers his enemy and then sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It's a beautiful picture. If you're the note-taking type, I want to give you a few key texts that will be helpful if you're reviewing this later. You have the first one. Another one is Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 5 through 10. Another is Hebrews chapter 7. Verse 1 through 8, 1. Psalm 110. And Genesis 14, 17 and 20. So Jesus, this is this first concept that we get from the author of Hebrews. Everything that's wrapped up in that one little verse is this. So the first concept is, is that Jesus' priesthood is better because he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses as a man, just like every other priest, except without the stain of sin, which makes his atonement better. The author of Hebrews loves this word, better. He, he never says best. Jesus is best. But there's an accumulative case. 
Uh, Jesus is better in every single way. And ultimately, he's making a case to a group of people, a group of Hebrew Christians who attempted to, to leave the finality, to, to leave the insecurity, perhaps, of the, this Christian faith to go back to something tangible in the Old Testament covenants. There's something tangible, isn't it? I mean, how many of us, and if you don't think you're this, think about every other Christian cult that exists. Because how many of us would love to have something a little bit more tangible than coming and listening to a guy speak every week? Uh, I speak every week and I'm that person. I want something more tangible. Uh, I want, I want something, some sort of display. Uh, I, want, I want, I don't know, an, an altar of bread and wine where I believe that the, the actual wine itself becomes the very blood of Christ and the body, the bread becomes his very body and then we sacrifice it again. Tangible. I want, some, I want some bells, I want some smells, I, I want some imagery. I want something tangible for my dollar, for my time. And so exactly what was going on for these Hebrew Christians. I wanted to go back to, perhaps it was the safety. After all, the, 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 the Jewish people within the Roman world had a special mandate that allowed them to worship as Jews. They didn't have to offer any sort of homage to Caesar. They prayed on behalf of him or, or for him, but they didn't have to pray to him. So perhaps it was that safety that they were longing for. Or maybe it was just simply that they wanted that tangible. They wanted to go back. They wanted to go back to the temple. They wanted the smell of the blood. They, they wanted to see something die. Uh, they, they wanted the, the Torah, the law. They wanted, they wanted to reminisce. They wanted to go back to those sorts of things. But, but the problem from the author of Hebrews is that they makes it pretty clear that you can't go back. On what planet would you be the kind of person that could say, you know what, I get that Jesus Christ died for my sins, that he's done it, that I don't need to do anything else, but hey, why don't I just go back to this old system? Remember what we were talking about last week in terms of progressive revelation? There was a point where you could have believed that there would be a son that would come ultimately through the line of Eve and crush the head of the serpent and then reject the fact that there was any covenant made with David. It would put you outside of the covenant. So it is here with these Christians. I want something else. And so the author of Hebrews is making this cumulative case to demonstrate that Jesus is better in every single way. And I'm so thankful because here we get to see that Jesus' priesthood is better than the laws, than Aaron's, than Aaron's sons, than the Levites' priesthood. There's some things that, we, that he has in common. After all, this is the sh- this fulfillment of this shadow, this type, like all of the prophets last week. There are some similarities. There are some things that Jesus as a priest has in common with other priests. But then ultimately, because he fulfills those shadows, he has something so much more, dare we say, better. So if we jump across to chapter 4 of Hebrews, starting from verse 14, we see, it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast 
our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Now, this is what made having a high priest who was a man and not an angel, perhaps, better. Because as a man, you get to sympathise with the, the plight of humanity. And so all high priests had this in common. They were all men. So is Jesus. Jesus is fully man. What a miracle. I think the incarnation is perhaps the greatest miracle of all, apart from the fact that God was able to forgive our sins through his atonement. It's an incredible miracle. God became man. And so then we have this high priest that we're able to come to and he is able to sympathize with all of our weaknesses. He gets it. He was tempted. Perhaps his temptation was attempting far beyond anything any of us will experience. And yet he's able to do this without sin. Now, if Jesus hadn't gone through this, let's just say for a moment that uh, Jesus had come along and instead of being born as a babe, he was born at, I don't know, 33. And he comes down from earth and he's fully man and he, he, he's, he's there and he's offered up as a sacrifice. He dies and then he raises again three days later. Have we lost anything? He ascends on high and he sits at the right hand of God. Have we lost anything? We have. We, we've, lost, we've lost this very fact that we can with confidence come to him, knowing that he knows what it is that we are going through. I don't know if you picture this very often or you, you understand this concept, but Jesus Christ right now as a man, and he is seated on the very throne room of God, and he judges the world as king now. He's there and he knows exactly what it is that we are going through. And this is part of our confidence. He gets it. Yet without sin. There are some that will question this very concept. They'll say, well, he can't be attempted in every way that we were. One thing that comes to mind is, is surely he never knew what it was to commit a sin and then to be tempted to commit that sin again. There's a special temptation in that. But I want to I say this to you. Which is harder? Which is harder? To, to be tempted by sin and to resist and then be tempted and resist and then be tempted and resist and resist and resist and then give in. Or to be tempted by sin and never give in. Which is harder? We know. I answer this question, which is harder? Is it easier or is it harder to get up out of bed and run for four days in a week and then have a day off? Or to run every single day of your life? Well, obviously the other is harder. It's easier if you can do it and you can have a, you can have a rest. But Jesus never gave in. And so... Every single possible category of temptation Jesus went through. 
and he never caved. And so he understands everything you're going through. He gets it. He's experienced it. And he conquered it. And in that final point, he is better than any other priest before him. Because every other priest could empathize, they could sympathize, they knew what it was to be a man and to go through those temptations, but every one of them failed at some point. And so they themselves needed a priest. The high priest needed a priest. I think that would have been an extraordinarily hard place. Being a pastor is a hard place. Because there's this, this temptation when people hear you get up and they hear you expound the holy words of God that they think that you must be the best of them all. It's a hard level to live up to. And because it's so hard, it's very easy to fall off that perch for people. Imagine being the high priest of Israel. Here you are as this one who, who once a year, because of the Day of Atonement, has to stand up before Israel and atone for their guilt. And the only thing that you can do as a priest is try your very best to atone for your own guilt. I haven't got anybody else who's going to do this for me. I'm going to try and do it. And in that process, I've got to remember my failure just yesterday. Very hope is that they are the best of us all. But we see all too often the failure of the high priest. And at best, maybe you get a, a really great high priest for a while, but then his sons are no good. It's a very hard role to be the high priest because while you are reminding everybody else of their sin, you remind yourself of your sin. Not Jesus. He gets to sympathize without guilt. So he's better in that way. Jesus is better because he doesn't have to offer for his own sin. If we have a look at chapter 5, verse 4. It says, No one takes this honor for himself, but only when he is called by God, just as Aaron was. So Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed by him who said, You are a son today, I have begotten you. So we get this, this initial sense that, that just as Aaron was not, did not make himself high priest, he was selected by God, so Jesus is selected by God. And so he fulfills that first requirement. But then, to make it better than that, if we jump across to chapter 7, verse 6, it says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sin and then for the sins of those of the people. Since he did this once for all, when he offered up himself. So it's God that installs him within this priesthood. And then, and then he doesn't have to offer up. No other, no other priest could have said this. He had to offer daily 
over and over again, and I've got to do it for myself, and then I've got to do it over and over again. Jesus is better because he did it once by offering up his own self. Because ultimately, what is a lamb? It's a picture. And it would be a picture of Jesus himself. We'd have to trust in the blood of bulls and goats. Have a look at Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13. Now, there was some good. I don't want to downplay the benefits of the old covenant. There are certainly benefits there because ultimately it provided a way in which Israel, before the very coming of Christ, could continue to come to God and have atonement. But there's a weakness. Verse 9, verse, chapter 9, verse 13, it says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purposes of the for the per, per, sorry, purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And so the initial argument from the author of Hebrews is that there is some benefit. There is some benefit to the Levitical system. If, the, if it's true that the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of devoured person with the ashes of heifers sanctify for the purification of the flesh, meaning it has a ritualistic purification because this is how they thought about it. They, did, they thought about mainly the, the, the fact that they needed cleansing so that they could ritually come to God. There were certain things that you could do, like touch a dead person, that would mean that you couldn't come into the presence of God. You wouldn't be able to come to the temple. You wouldn't be able to come to the sanctuary. And so it's the, the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of the ashes of an heifer actually cleansed that person. It did what was necessary for the flesh to be sanctified so that it could, they could come with guiltlessly in that way, into the sanctuary, into the temple. And so it did do something... But if that's true, then how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience? See the difference? The, it, the, the continually offering of, of, of a sin offering, what did it do? It reminded you. Reminded you, it, it might have been enough to cleanse you so you could come guiltlessly before God, and in that coming, it did enough for that, but it reminded you it did nothing for your conscience because it did nothing internally, but not Jesus' atonement. In the offering up of Himself without blemish to God, He purifies our conscience from dead works so that we can serve the living God. This is what we need. We need to be able to say in our every single day lives because we don't come to a physical temple. We don't come to a physical sanctuary. We need to come to God in our everyday lives. And so we need something that will ultimately quell our conscience. 
This is why preaching the gospel to yourself is so important. Because the devil is able to use your sin to keep you from God. Which is the very opposite of what the atonement does. In the atonement you are cleansed in such a way that you can come to the living God. And you can go, you know what, I stuffed up pretty bad yesterday. My sin, I feel the weight and the stain of my sin But if I look to Christ and not to myself, I can see the very reason why I can be accepted by the living God. I can know that my sin has been been dealt with. And me in my every single day life, despite the fact that I live in the full knowledge of my weakness, of my imperfection... If I stop looking at myself and I look at Christ and I look at everything that he has done and the offering up is himself to God... The spotless lamb, there is my reason to come with boldness and confidence. And so, argument less of the greater, blood of bulls and goats does something, but Jesus does something so much more. And in case you needed more convincing, the author of Hebrews says in verse 4, chapter 10, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So if you're returning back to that, you're returning not only back to something lesser, but perhaps you show something about yourself. If you're, if you're hoping that, that, that something tangible, like the blood of bulls and goats, can do something that Jesus has not done, maybe you're yet to fully understand the completeness through which Jesus Christ has offered atonement for you. This is what lies in rub for the Christian's who the author of Hebrews is addressing. So what have we said? We've said that Jesus' priesthood is better because he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses as a man, yet without the stain of sin, which makes his atonement better. Number two. There was, we've already touched on this topic, but the idea that no priest makes himself a priest, and nor did Jesus, but the way that Jesus makes himself a priest is better. So priests don't make themselves priests. We've seen that. Chapter, four, chapter 5, verse 4. But we consider how much better the appointment is. Jesus' appointment is so much more significant. I want to say before we get to this point, because I'm about to bring up Melchizedek. Uh, if you can understand the Melchizedekian priesthood and the fact that Jesus Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, congratulations, you can account yourself as one of the mature, according to the author of Hebrews. Because I want you to notice something. There's a very famous warning warning passage in chapter 6, but it actually begins at verse 11 and verse 5. And so it's, it's actually really important to the understanding of the Melchizedekian priesthood that you see the gap, right? Because... So in verse 5, we're told that Jesus did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also said in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now then we see Jesus doing things that priests do. In verse 7, in those days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Now, that's something that all priests do. 
It's something we saw Moses do. It's something we saw other priests do. They would offer up prayers. But Jesus' priesthood was better because the way in which he was appointed a priest is better. He's called a son. And so in verse 10, we get this being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then there is this warning that's offered. Basically, the author of Hebrews goes on to say, well, you're just not mature enough for this yet. But then he picks up this idea again in chapter 7. So he chastises them for not yet being mature enough and for the fact that there's a chance they're going to miss out on something. I don't want you to be those people. I want you to be the mature people. So if you get it, congratulations. You're amongst the mature, according to the author of Hebrews. Let's think about it. How was Aaron appointed a priest? Well, God came to Moses and he told him to set apart Aaron. And then how did, Aaron, how did Moses, according to the instruction of God, appoint Aaron? He made atonement for him with bloods, bulls and goats. He anointed him in that way. And so... Moses had to install Aaron as a high priest, as a mediator. So he had to act between himself and Aaron and God. Not so with Jesus. God comes himself and says, you are my son today, I have begotten you. He would see this idea of kingship. We're going to look at sonship next week and the idea for kingship. And the idea of priesthood all being together as one. It's an incredible thing. Jesus is the great king priest, appointed directly by God, by Yahweh. It's probably as good a time as any now to think about who is Melchizedek. If you go across, you don't have to do it now, we're not going to read it, we just don't have time. But later on, if you're looking back over these thoughts, if you go to Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 through 20 you'll see that Melchizedek is this guy who pops up in the scene after, after Abraham manages to rescue his son Lot. Sorry, his uncle, his nephew Lot. He, he, he rescues him and he brings him back and he and his, his men who have been fighting are famished. And then this random guy comes out of nowhere called Melchizedek. And he offers Moses bread and wine. Meaning he was able to give sustenance, the daily bread and wine needed for, Moses, for, for Abraham and his troops. He offers it up. He offers him a blessing. And then Abraham offers up a tenth of everything to Melchizedek. But we don't get any explanation where this guy came from. Melchizedek is king of Salem, according to the beginning of Hebrews 7. And if you have a, la- have a look at the geographical region, it's possible that he was king and priest of Jerusalem. And he was priest of God, or most of the Most High God. And he meets Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blesses him... And Abraham appoints a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. 
And then also king of Salem, that is king of peace. And so he is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. And then he is without father, without mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. So this is the first of the arguments for why the Melchizedekian priesthood is better than the Aaronic priesthood. It's better because Abraham was better than the Levites. And, because, and Abraham, because he comes before the Levitical priesthood, because he becomes before Aaron, because they are his sons, so to speak, Abraham is better than Aaron. And Yet, this random figure called Melchizedek blesses Abraham. And Abraham offers up a tenth. And so this stellar figure of Abraham is, is bettered by another. There is one better than him. We don't get this idea from Abraham from anybody else. There is a king of righteousness who is the king of peace and he is better than Abraham, who's better than Aaron. And so that's the first way in which the Melchizedekian priesthood is better than the Aaronic priesthood. Now, you might be tempted, and if you are this person, it's fine. My pastor is this person. You might be tempting to look at Melchizedek and say, he is a pre-incarnate form of Jesus. That's fine. The church has held to that for a long time. But I don't necessarily think you have to to understand what the author of Hebrews is saying. But look, he, he's without father or money at mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor ends of life. The idea is, is that the, all the important people in the Bible, you know who their mummy and daddy are and who their children were. You know where they come from, and you know where they went. And yet this guy who was more important than Abraham, he has no genealogy. And so there's a sense in which he, we don't know where he came from, and we don't know where he ends. So he continues on. That's the idea in mind. And so it, it's, it, I think he's a shadow and a type of Christ. He is the king of of Salem. He is the king of righteousness and the king of priests. And he has an internality in the fact that we don't know where he came from and we don't know where he went. But we know where Aaron came from and we know where he went. We know what happened to his sons. This is one of the other ideas for how the Melchizedekian priesthood is so much better. But then there is another way. So that's, that's pre... Think about it like this. That, that's pre-Aaron. So even before Aaron steps on the, on the scene, the Melchizedekian priesthood is better. But then the Aaronic priesthood is around 450 years when the promise that's actually being quoted, because the author of Hebrews is not quoting Genesis 14. He's quoting Psalm 110. So let's jump across. This is a very important psalm. Most quoted psalm of the New Testament. 
We shouldn't miss that this is a psalm of David. Sometimes that superscription is just, it's just somebody who's come along and written it on the top to tell us who wrote the psalm. It doesn't always have importance. But it doesn't matter how far we push back in terms of manuscript evidence. That superscription, a psalm of David, which in my brilliant ESV Bible is the same size as the rest of the text, as it should be. But in your text it might be in italics and it might be slightly smaller. It changes the meaning of the entirety of the beginning of the psalm, if this isn't a psalm of David. Because let's read it. It says, a psalm of David, the Lord says to my Lord. Now let's stop for a second. Let me read this another way. Yahweh says to Adam, Yahweh says to the Lord. If this is David, and this is how Jesus thinks about this, by the way. If this is David, David is thinking of the Messiah. But if this is a courtier, the way that we would understand that if somebody just editorially came along and wrote that this is, the, that this is a psalm of David, then you would understand this as the courtier saying, well, Yahweh said to my Lord the King. But who is it that David is calling Lord? We just can't get away from the fact that, they, that if this is, and there is every evidence to suggest that it is, and that's how Jesus understands it, that this is a psalm of David. David is saying something spectacular. Yahweh says to somebody who David calls Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. It's an incredible thought. It has to do with the Davidic covenant, this, this idea that when David goes to make God a house, God comes to him and says, no, no, I will make you a house, 1 Samuel 7. And so David here, here is pondering this. Uh, D.A. Carson has a wonderful way of thinking about this text. He thinks that David was simply doing his devotions. Remember last week we looked at Deuteronomy and the role of a king was to be a man after God's law. He was to write out a copy of his law and then he was to read it daily. D.A. Carson thinks that the reason that this came about was because David was doing his devotions like a faithful king. And then he starts thinking about this very fact that, that God has come and given him this promise. And this promise is for a lineage and that there's going to become one, one day, who, who is going to continue to sit on the throne of David forever. And so this one is going to have to overcome all of the enemies and, and he's going to sit at the right hand of God until God makes his enemies a footstool. And so there's going to be an action... There's going to be something that happens that then the guy sits down and that very action is the conquering of his enemies. God will do that. It says in verse 2, The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. And the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, if you're David and you're doing your devotions and you're looking at this text, and you're looking at the promises of God, and all of a sudden you stumble across this random guy in Genesis who is the king of Salem, probably Jerusalem, and he is the king of righteousness, and he is both a king and a priest, what's going to be your automatic reaction? 
D.A. Carson points out the very fact that Saul, the king just before him, had been dethroned for this very thing. Trying to be a king and a priest. And so he ultimately is going, well, it, it, it can't be intrinsically wrong that you're a king and a priest. I know as David must have been going, I know that I can't do it. But one day, one day there is going to come one. And he is going to be once again king and priest. And here is this beautiful picture of what that looks like. One who is even greater than Abraham. We don't know where he came from. We don't know where he went. He was the king of peace and the king of righteousness. And he blesses everything else that God had promised that he was going to do. He blesses Abraham. And then there is this great connection for David between the kingship that's promised to him and to his future son. Who will overcome everything else and he will also be priest. Beautiful. But what this means is that this promise is made 400 years after the establishment of the Levitical priesthood. So we think about that. So before the establishment of the Levitical priesthood, Melchizedek is better because he's better than Abraham. And then 400 years after the establishment of the Levitical priesthood, after the Aaronic priest, after he was made high priest, God makes a promise that there's going to be another high priest. Important. Going to be another high priest. Imagine being Aaron in that moment. Or the priest of the day. And here is David promising that there's going to become a one, not from your line, but from another. I imagine it would have been disconcerting. But Jesus is made not by legal code... He's not made a priest by legal code. He is made priest by this promise. I'll look at 7 verses 12 through 16. It says, For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one for whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah and the connection with that tribe of Moses said nothing about a priest. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. That's how he's made priest. He, he steps into the Melchizedek priesthood does away with the way in which priests were put in place, and he's brought in through his indestructible life. And this is important for us. This is so important. Because all of a sudden we have this amazing concept of the fact that right now Jesus is the same high priest as who has always been there for the last 2,000 years. This is important because a high priest's job is intercession. He intercedes on behalf of the people. 
And we know about Eli. If you know about Eli's priesthood in the day of Samuel, you'll know that Eli was a pretty good priest and people could be confident in Eli, but then his sons come along and then you lose all of that confidence. Not so with Jesus. He's been put into the Melchizedekian priesthood by having an indestructible life. And now we're told in verse 25 of chapter 7, consequently he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He, he lives to make intercession for you. And sometimes we might be tempted to think about this ongoing intercession of Jesus Christ as, as uh, persuading his capricious father. You know, we get this idea of him sitting up there and saying, well, father... I know you'd really like to smite my people. I know you'd really like to crush them. But remember, I offered up my life. And so he binds his father in some way and makes it so that he can't. But that's not how this intercession works at all. Because who installs Jesus as the priest after the order of Melchizedek? Whose plan was this? It's the father's plan. Yahweh says to my Lord. It's his plan. The intercession works more like this. Um, Charles Wesley has a beautiful hymn. It's called Arise, My Soul, Arise. Shake off thy guilt, thy, thy guilty fears. I think, I have no evidence of this, but I think that when Charles Wesley wrote this hymn, he was thinking of Hebrews. Go and have a read of the whole of it, but I want to read you one stanza. This is his concept of the way in which Christ intercedes on the behalf of his people. He says, Five five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransomed sinner die. Charles Wesley's concept for how Christ lives to intercede for his people. It's in the once-for-all sacrifice. That in the wounds that Christ bore upon Calvary, he now uses to intercede for us. And he lives forever. He's guiltless. He's perfect. He's managed to offer a once-for-all sacrifice. He's seated at the right hand of God. He's been installed in the high priest after the order of Melchizedek without all of its weaknesses and with all of its glory and grandeur as a king. And he now lives to intercede for us through that once-for-all intercession, that once-for-all sacrifice through which he atones not for himself but for us. And he fulfills all of the shadows and the types in the Levitical and the Aaronic priesthood and in the bulls and the goats. He fulfills all of that and he cleanses us. He actually cleanses us. And he can't be stripped. That can't be taken away from him. Because of the power of an indestructible life. I want to go back to chapter 4. There are so many more things that we could say about this. But in closing, I want to go back to chapter 4. 
verse 16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Let us with confidence draw near. We have every reason, if we look at ourselves, to not have confidence. Maybe that's just me. If I get obsessed about myself, if I'm looking at myself, every reason not to have confidence. But if we're looking at Jesus, if we're looking at all of, this, all of these pictures that have been displayed for us by the author of Hebrews, we find our confidence in Jesus Christ. In the fact that, that this one who has been installed by Yahweh himself as priest who is also the perfect sacrifice, able to save to the uttermost, right now interceding for us. Who is stronger than him? What is the accuser? That's what Satan means. It means accuser. What are we when we accuse ourselves compared to Christ? Surely we are nothing. Surely he is nothing. So in those moments, I think it's easy. And I think there's perhaps a reason then to check yourself. If you're ever coming into the throne room of God going, oh, you know what, I've been pretty good. And your confidence is based on your ability to have been pretty good in the last few days, you've missed it. In those moments, I think we need to check ourselves. But if you're feeling pretty lousy, you don't feel like you've had a very good week, if you don't think that there's any possible way that God could accept you, God could accept me, this is where the priesthood of Christ comes in. We're not those who are left going, well, I hope the priest has made the sufficient sacrifice for his own sins. Or, he's a pretty good priest today, but I don't know about his son. We have full confidence. That this one who has made atonement for us as priest and as sacrifice, once for all offered atonement for us, he is our confidence. And there is nothing. Hear me, brothers and sisters. If you are clinging to Jesus Christ, there is nothing that can keep you from the throne room of God. He is our confidence. I want to read those stanzas again as we close from Charles Wesley. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransomed sinner die. And as Jesus Christ prays that prayer, it's as sure as the fact that Jesus Christ will return again. Let's pray.